Greg, we're recording this just as the Oscars are wrapping up, and let me tell you, they still find room to surprise you. You'd Absolutely. be impressed. It's like Toy Story full, pulling out. Again, <laughs> best animated film. I knew it. That's the Eat gra- it, Leica. That's <laughs> the gravest <laughs> injustice, John. That's what I'm most mad about. Missing Link deserved a best animated feature. Mm. Yeah. I, what I'm about just, uh, the, only, the only other controversial one I could think of is maybe Joker for best score. Like that one kind of ruffles some feathers. Yeah, so, well... If, if people are following our Twitter feed, which, God help you, you aren't. But um, <laughs> I, I will take responsibility for this one. It's great. Let me just preface by saying it's great that a, a woman has finally taken home the Oscar for Best Score. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Again, talking about inclusivity, and it's great that uh, women finally have a place in, in kind of these award ceremonies, and we're including a more diverse crop of, of people in these, in these award ceremonies. Mm-hmm. However... <laughs> <laughs> this score is one of the worst parts of a thoroughly average movie, The Joker. It's mm-hmm. a dirge. It's obvious. It sucked. I hate it. And mm. as I will talk about later in a little tease towards Spotlight, there's another Academy Award nominee in Best Score that has been nominated uh, innumerable times that I thought deserved it. But uh, we'll we'll discuss that later. Okay. Um, yeah. Again, I don't well, want to. You can't. You can't complain because your boy. Roger Deakins, the yes. Deke, as we call him, when we're out yeah. around yeah, doing cause... coke and, and picking up chicks. Um, <laughs> no, he's he, he he referred to this is one of the oddest things is his wife's yeah. name is James. That's what she mm-hmm. goes by, and and he he alluded to her not Jim, the, not Jimmy. Yeah. James. <laughs> <laughs> he he alluded to her and her stage name. That's not that's not her birth. Her birth name isn't James, but uh, he alluded to her and in, in her in her, his, his victory speech, which I don't mm-hmm. remember happening. Well, I'm, I'm sure it happened in his first Oscar win in 2017, the one that made me lose my mind and, and tweet yeah. and multiple friends. But mm-hmm. uh, I, he did it again in, in winning again for 1917. Uh, again, a film we may discuss later, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm happy he won. It's He's finally being acknowledged for uh, his wonderful work over the years, twice now, even though I, I think he should have at least five or six Oscars at this point, but we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll gloss over that. Again, he's being appreciated, and that's what's important. So, yeah. Well, I mean, we can't get away with this without talking about the biggest surprise of the night, which is Bong Joon-ho taking home Best Director and Best Picture. Yes, I, I was going to... You, you you took my joke. I was going to I was gonna joke that <laughs> Ford vs. Ferrari, everybody accused it of being a dad movie, you know, just a <laughs> basic... Yeah. But Ford vs. Ferrari triumphed. Instead, it's a great injustice. Obviously, Ford vs. Ferrari did not win, but mm. another great uh, movie, Parasite, did win. Uh, I my my enthusiasm for it is a little bit more muted, I'd say, than than other critics. Um, yeah, as I, oh, I, it's absolutely overrated, no doubt. Um, <laughs> well, I at think this even point, when it was coming out, yeah, I mean, at this point, yes, but yeah, it's won both the Palm d'Or and the Best Picture, uh, the Oscar for Best Picture, which I, I I can only name a handful of times that that has happened. So that's actually only happened once, really. And uh, yeah, and guess what movie it was. You'll never uh, guess. It's 1955's Marty. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was gonna say uh, Apocalypse Now was close. It was mm-hmm. nominated or it, it won. It tied for the Palm Door with another film. It didn't quite get the uh, Best Picture Oscar for Kramer versus Kramer, but uh, mm. it was close, and that's that's the only one that came to mind. But yeah, now to win the Palm Door, I don't think it won the BAFTAs, but like yeah, like and to win that and the Best Picture Oscar is is pretty remarkable and. 
It may, like now, I don't think it could ever live up to that remarkableness, but <laughs> I'm still happy it won, and I'm happy to be wrong again because I told a friend I didn't put out official my Oscar ballot predictions this year, mm. but I, I told a friend like my preference is Parasite, but that means that a 1917 will win. Mm-hmm. So that was my official prediction, and now my official prediction for Best Picture winner was wrong again, as it has been throughout the entire 2010s. So. I was kind of right. I kind of hedged my bets and said, like, it could be Parasite. My best guess is Parasite, but I'm yes. probably way off. And so I was I was right again, but that's because I hedge my bets whenever it comes to best picture. Yes. And there was that three-year streak I was right, but then I was like, eh, it could be Black Panther. Who knows? And <laughs> way off on that, that Yeah, not, not just that three-year streak, John. You should give yourself credit for this. Uh, you correctly predicted the best picture winner for three years in a row because it was your favorite picture for that particular year. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that finally I get to come around and my favorite picture of the year Ooh. becomes the best picture winner. Yeah, so. Yes. And there's, no, yeah. there's no accounting for taste, though, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I'm happy to gloat on that one, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's a pleasant surprise, let's say that. But Greg, what did you think of the show? What about the pageantry? The show... That's the thing. Like, it, there was no host again this year, and it mm-hmm. didn't feel like the show suffered for it. If anything, the show is shorter because of it, because we don't have to like cut back to, I don't know, a Seth MacFarlane no. or Billy Crystal or some like shitty comedian. But it's still <laughs> dumb. That's the problem. Oh, it's yeah. It's like they got rid of the host, but it's like the writers have not stepped up their game at all. <laughs> it's like here's the in memoriam segment. Here's the long protracted song of the year segments. Even though we still included Eminem. For some reason, yeah. Well, I'll I'll tell you why. It's because mm-hmm. uh, he won for best original song now, which is 17 years ago. Gosh, like you know, just yeah. I let that let that the passage of time wash over you. <laughs> 17 <laughs> years ago, and but he wasn't actually at the show to accept the award. So it's as if like okay, now he gets the chance to perform and actually accept the award in person. Not maybe, well, at least be there in person, not to officially accept an, uh, an award seventeen years retroactively. But uh, that's that's kind of the reason for it. And also, this wasn't the best year for uh, best song category. But uh, excuse me, into the unknown. <laughs> I missed that. Part. I missed the very first part of the show, so I, I missed that song. It didn't oh. did mean Adina Mazel. Or sorry, Adele. Adele. <laughs> oh, it's Sandy. Oh my Sandy. God. <laughs> Who can forget oh. that from many years ago? Uh, but <laughs> Which is a testament to how exciting this show is year yes. after year. Yes. <laughs> when we're still talking about something that happened five years yeah. ago. But I, I, yes, I completely missed that. But if you're you're commenting on the show's writing i was a little i'll say miffed by the uh performative wokeness like everybody mm-hmm. acknowledges and was mad there's not enough uh nominees devoted to either women or people of color mm-hmm. and then so what happens is that like people comment on it in either the show itself or in the presentations but not in the actual awards is the issue <laughs> <laughs> yes that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so they Which brought out. I, it doesn't feel like it's kind of covering their asses a little bit. Exactly. I know the, the Janelle Monet and the Billy Porter musical number was kind of meant to like assuage that a little bit, but it's like uh, actually nominate them in the first place. Yes. Like there's, an, there's a simple <laughs> fix. Yeah. 
Same in the middle of the show, there was an MC that I, I didn't even know who he was. And mm-hmm. Questlove of uh, the Roots fame was uh, DJing. And he commented on, like, oh, there, there aren't enough uh, uh, people of color in the nominees. And I know Scarlett Johansson uh, had a dress embroidered with um, all the great female was, directors. Uh, who no, that, nom- was, that wasn't uh, Scarlett Johansson. That was. Um, did I say Scarlett Nat- Johansson? Or? You meant Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman, excuse me. Um, yeah, yeah Natalie Portman had a dress embroidered with all the great uh, women directors who weren't nominated for this year's award show. So again, like like performative wokeness. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I prefer instead. Well, a it'd be it'd be greater if we just canceled the Oscars because it's a completely fatuous and stupid <laughs> way to actually honor films. Like great films, we shouldn't have shouldn't have to compete against each other. Like we could appreciate them on their own merits. But instead, like we have to like do these performative shows of like I I, I include people of color. Like my other favorite part of the show was um, Pete Buttigieg, that uh, that regular human who's running for president, <laughs> yes. said my my favorite movie this year was human movie um little women <laughs> and and other human favorites that uh that women and people of color the, those people of color that i love as as mm-hmm. my tenure of mayor can attest <laughs> oh, gosh that pete buddha judge he always just turns out to say the right thing every time exactly he's so good at that and it comes off yeah. so natural it comes off so natural yes remember that he's the gay candidate <laughs> yes <laughs> I'm just calling this right now. I'm going to call it, even though it's, uh, what is today? February 9th, 2020. Mm-hmm. When he loses the Democratic nomination. Loses. To <gasps> our, oh, our, our, our The great white <laughs> the hype. The very idea. <laughs> exactly. The great white hype. Well, the, let's see what the Democratic National Convention has to say about that. But mm-hmm. when the great white hype, Bernie Sanders, uh, takes it from him, steals it from him, as it were. <laughs> He will divorce Chasten and wow. say like, "Oh, I, <laughs> I'm not gay" or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that motherfucker is not gay. <laughs> he's like, I, but like again, he's a brand bot. Fellow human needs something to separate himself from, <laughs> from uh, other yes. other presidential candidates. I will be the first LGBTQ candidate. Inspiring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The values of our of our presidency are strong. <laughs> the presidency is our values. Well, also it's a, it's a pity that the Independent Spirit Awards I feel like just took the wins out of the whole Oscar uh, ceremony with their their highlight of the night. I don't know if you got a chance to watch this. They had the gay men's chorus. Yes, come yes, up I did on watch stage this. and basically quote unquote celebrate the you know most LGBT friendly moments of the year. Really, it just turned into a whole <laughs> celebration of Laura Dern, yes. rightfully so. That that was a great bit. Uh, I I'm glad I watched the whole bit because it starts with uh, first. Uh, host Abu Plaza introducing it, yeah, and she has a, a please clap moment inside there. Or yes, like, at least yes. Like, <laughs> she was expecting it, and it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But then it leads into this great comedy bit. Like <laughs> uh, my favorite, my favorite moment being like, uh, oh, the the kid at the center of the divorce in uh, in Marriage Story. Well, probably maybe be. not now, but in a few yeah. years, <laughs> he loves Halloween so. <laughs> And, of course, it becomes a great tribute, of course, to now Oscar winner Laura Dern. Exactly. Um, yeah. And rightfully so. Right, rightfully so. I, I hope people don't deride her for, yes, technically being part of Hollywood royalty because she is the daughter of uh, Bruce Dern and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, oh, my gosh, uh, Diane Ladd, excuse me. Um, not, to, not to erase women, excuse me. I was going to say <laughs> Diane Ladd first, but <laughs> I, I obviously shared the, the, the man at the center of the, uh, that shares her name, so... 
Well, which one has won an Oscar? Bruce Stern's, I know, have been nominated. I don't know if he's actually won. I don't think either of them have won, technically. Really? Yeah. Hmm, I know they've both been nominated. At least I think they've both been nominated. The one thing, God, God, God bless me for this. <laughs> I remember now Laura Dern is obviously famously remembered for playing Dr. Ellie Sadler in a seminal film, uh, Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And now I remember Diane Ladd for playing the uh, scientist in another dinosaur-themed movie, the Roger Corman Cashin Carnosaur. Nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, so it's funny during that um, award, during that like little tribute that the Gay Men's Chorus was putting on, they had a still from a short film that she did, which I remember watching in like middle school. Really? It was like an yeah, it was like an adaptation of a short story. And it's basically like it, it, it's a story of sexually assault. It's not a it's not a fun story, but it's a little short film. And I just like wow, that's a real deep cut. Let me see if I can find it. It's like from the eighties. Okay. It was like one of her first on screen roles. Yeah, I, I mean, I was kind of retrospectively looking through her career, and yeah, she hasn't had enough lead roles. Mm-hmm. And I know one of the stills they showed was from Inland Empire. Uh, a David Lynch uh, joint that mm-hmm. didn't exactly get a lot of awards attention, but has now become a cult classic, and that's one of the the one of her projects that is definitely like her have has her front and center as the lead, whereas yeah. she's obviously won for best supporting actress this year and has somewhat been a supporting actress throughout her whole career. But yeah, the movie I was talking about uh, was called Smooth Talk from 1985. Okay. And uh, it, it's actually not a short film. It clocks in an hour and uh, 30 minutes, which is kind of a surprise. Okay. I remember being, maybe I just was zoned out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, they edited it in the class or whatever that you watched. Maybe so. that's, yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that was one of my earliest recollections of one great yeah. Laura Dern. Yes. But, John, we've been focusing a lot on Oscar's present. Mm-hmm. Let's cast our minds to Oscar's past, huh? Oh. That segue just mm, wow, chef's yes, kiss, brilliant. Exactly. I I, I hoped you like it because mm-hmm. hello, welcome to the aspiring snobs. This is where we try to catch up on classic films that we haven't seen yet, and uh, really try to build up our film bona fides. And so we decided to devote this month not just to winners or nominees of the best picture Oscar category, but also musicals. This was your idea. You're the one that wanted, really yes. wanted to do musicals. Yes, I did. Yeah. And don't don't blame me, though, because sometimes we just don't know any better, okay? Yeah. <laughs> well, don't know any better. I mean, this is, this is a real outlier. This one we really should have seen a mm. long time ago. Uh, however, this was not in our VHS collection. We're going to make up for it by watching it right now. We're, of course, talking about the Robert Wise-directed Julie Andrews starring the classic. You know what it is. Come on, John, build that score up. Build that score up. Come on, let's go. The hills hills are, alive are alive with the, the sound, sound of music. With songs they have sung for a thousand wants to sing every song it hears. My heart wants to beat like the wings of the birds that rise from the lake to the trees. My heart wants to sigh like a chime that flies. 
is from a church on a breeze To laugh like a brook when it trips and falls over stones on its way To sing through the night like a lark who is learning to pray There are five Oscars. Five. Including, yes, including Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Not Julie Andrews, unfortunately. Like unbelievable. I can't believe no. she didn't. Well, we'll we'll get to that. We'll, yes. But yeah, this is this is like really a major one. I I remember our in laws were shocked when <laughs> <laughs> they're like, "You guys haven't seen The Sound of Music yet," and we've been putting this off for years. But well, how could we not? I mean, need it? It must be noted this movie is nearly three hours long, oh, which is understandable enough. for an actual. Broadway production, you know, with an intermission and everything, but it's like, for a movie? Come on. Come on. <laughs> well, this turned out to be a great nostalgia trip for my spouse, mm-hmm. my beloved Megan, who remembers watching this Who film. was in the Nazi youth. Yes, we know. Shea <laughs> <No. laughs> <laughs> No, she, she remembers uh, putting this on with her grandmother, and I thought... Gosh, what a great child-rearing uh, movie, because it is indeed three hours long. Our poor parents, <laughs> in their VHS rotation, was all these uh, Disney Renaissance movies like Aladdin and a goofy movie. Clocking it at a perfect 90 minutes. Exactly. <laughs> only 90 minutes. They only had 90 minutes to occupy this. This one, 178 minutes of, and I'm going to say, very good stuff. Like, mm. it's just wonderful. Like, I, there's not a bad movie. There's not a bad song in this production. It's great. It's perfectly performed by the great Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer, who we'll talk about later. Mm. But, like, I, I can completely understand, like, people's enamoration with this one. Like, I I was kind of, like, I had kind of fallen in love with it, so, like, as it was um, going along. I actually, I'm going to land on the opposite side of the fence. This movie is so slow. It is really? so... Yes, like uh, this is obviously a Roger and Hammerstein's production, or Roger and Hammerstein production. Yes. So obviously, I was looking forward to it a bit more than last week, where it's like very much a junk uh, jukebox musical. This is actually something written for the stage and screen with music that's meant to actually fit in there. But this movie is so slow. I was like, is there a cut somewhere called like the frenetic cut? Because everything, <laughs> every line of dialogue in this movie is just like pregnant pause after pregnant pause. And just, what? well, whatever do you mean? Well, let me explain to you. It's like, it's so <laughs> redundant and slow. And it's like, I do love the music. Yes. And obviously Robert Wise is an extremely talented director who I'm just, I'm just grateful we got to see a musical where you got to film outside. How lovely. Yes. <laughs> um, but this movie just it's interminable it just lasts forever it just takes forever to get anywhere well i'm going to push back on that like i will agree with you yes there are a lot of like pregnant pauses but i think it's the direction that really serves it well mm-hmm. there's one scene in particular so just to set up the plot a little bit we have a, a, a stop me if you've heard this one before yeah. <laughs> julie andrews <laughs> is a singing nanny who comes into the lives of a bunch of ill-behaved children, even though their father is very strict and very set in his ways. Yes. (laughs) I don't want to attribute people's uh, success to luck. (laughs) However, talk about timing to do two big bombastic musicals in a row in which you are a caretaker slash surrogate mother um, who softens the heart of a stern father figure. God bless Julie Andrews, as beautiful and talented as she is, like is able to do that. But <laughs> Hence why she didn't want to take the role as Maria Von Trapp in this film. But she is a, a wayward nun 
uh, like as the title song like intones, like she she you know uh, is somewhat rebellious and and gets out of the convent even though she's mm. devoted to. She this, has a uh, lust the, for life that you know the the Catholic Church is just not used to, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, and as a result, she gets assigned to being a governess of a widower played by Christopher Plummer, mm-hmm. uh, who's a who's an Austrian naval captain, even though Austria is landlocked, but we'll gloss <laughs> over that. I, I couldn't get past that. There are a few other things, even though I, I gave my overall like positive impression of the film, there are a few things that I'm going to critique later, but mm-hmm. uh, she, she becomes a governess and there there's a few shots, like I love the number of like, I feel confidence and there's a long shot in which she's like walking down the road with a I'm presuming an empty guitar case and, and sack over mm-hmm. her shoulder. And like yes, she trips and it's a mistake, and they leave it in the cut. It's those like little touches that I love. Same with like um, again, this isn't a musical number, but she steps into the ballroom, which plays a, a an important part in the in the production later because there's a big like uh, not a cotillion ball, but like a big ball that the the captain hosts. All that like kind of like gripped me, even though as you said like. There's a lot of pregnant pauses, and there's a lot of moments without music. I'd say there are only really five big, big production numbers, mm-hmm. and they're all hits. But again, it is just five, and they reprise them all in the second act. So like, <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> Over the course of the three-hour movie, there are actually only really about five songs. I am 16, going on 17. I know that I'm naive. Fellows I meet may tell me I'm sweet and willingly I believe I am 16 going on 17 innocent as a rose Bachelor dandies, drinkers of brandies, what do I know of those? Totally unprepared am I to face a world of men shy and scared am I of things beyond my ken I need someone older and wiser telling me what to do you are 17 going on 18 I'll depend on you feel like this is a movie that i think a lot of people remember for those moments but yes. like if you have to actually sit down and watch it as a whole i think it it takes forever to get anywhere and i do think that i, I just found myself bored watching it a lot of the time <laughs> really yeah well, i d- did and again i was surprised because i was looking forward to seeing it and obviously i'm a big fan of roger and hammerstein but you know it's i i don't know what i'm expecting <laughs> like this is a movie <laughs> takes place uh during the uh kind of advent of world war ii um but we really don't get a sense of kind of the stakes. We don't get a lot of sense of the uh, the the context of which this is all happening. We get a few lines where it's like, "Oh, well, I don't care for these Nazis. Thank you very much. I'm Austrian." <laughs> well, uh, let me just um, extol and somewhat critique like the virtues of this movie. Mm-hmm. I think I'll give credit to screenwriter Ernest Lehman, mm-hmm. who wrote a lot of classic movies of the '50s and '60s. He worked a lot with Alfred Hitchcock, and I think he knew before all these like script doctors and authors like came in like and wrote save the cat and yeah yeah and and he kind of knew so there's a call to action for our young maria von trapp played by uh julie andrews and it's like Mm -hmm. oh i like i want to be a good nun and the mother superior says like no you're going to be a governess and she's she's initially resistant to the call Mm -hmm. and like i 
I was like kind of gripped at that point. It was like, oh, perfect. Like that's the perfect center of like dramatic tension. And even though there wasn't like a Sid Field or Save the Cat for Ernest Lehman to follow, like he kind of knew like what, what like drew an audience in, in terms of like dramatic tension. And that's kind of what drew me in. And that's why I mm-hmm. love that shot of, um, even though it's, it's without music or anything, like she does enter this uh, dimly lit brawl room and kind of like does a twirl. Mm-hmm. Like it, th- that in, that introduction, like, is the stuff I love. And, again, I'll credit not only Julie Andrews' performance, but also Ernest Lehman for, like, knowing, like, what what draws, like, characters together. Same with um, Captain Von Trapp. Uh, Georg is his name. Uh, played by Ernest... Uh, or, excuse me, uh, Christopher Plummer. Mm. Like, he... Like you also set up... Maria Von Trapp is the free spirit. Like, the one who... who, who knows the virtues of fun and nature and a chaotic world versus the structured Captain Von Trapp who, mm-hmm. like, you know, like, has, commands his children with an iron fist and has this <laughs> signal whistle and all that. Again, very obvious, like, dramatic stuff, but I'll give credit to uh, screenwriter Ernest Lehman and director Robert Weiss for knowing how to do that, like, properly. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. obviously, there's very uh, strong arresting moments in this movie. But again, it can't make up the fact that it's still stuffed in a, a three-hour-long sandwich. Like, you know, yes. just those beautiful mor- morsels where all the ingredients come together. Yeah, but when you stretch it out to three hours, I just think it doesn't work. Yeah. And also, like, we have to, you know, t- they're sadly not the only characters in the film, but they are the probably the two main characters and the only ones that kind of get a certain level of characterization. Uh, we also have the the kind of wicked stepmother, I guess is how to describe her. She, yes. uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of weird, like, looking at it, like, back-to-back with, like, an American in Paris, because it's like, there, she she's not evil, so to say, yeah. but she is, like, she knows the situation, and she is going to, like, try to turn it into her own benefit. So she sees that Julie Andrews' character kind of, like, yeah, has goo-goo eyes for this man. She's like, but no, that's my husband, so... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. For two musicals in a row, we're seeing a tall, blonde woman um, <laughs> be the object of, of villainy and derision, uh, trying to <laughs> destroy relationships here. Yeah. Uh, that, that was going to be the, the source of my critique. Like, yes, I love the setup, in which, uh, like, Julie Andrews has this one ambition and she finds kind of her sense of purpose in, in raising these seven children. And also Christopher Plummer's character, like, kind of being a widower and having this one set of, this one set of values and then having it completely flipped on its head. Like, that's great in terms of setup and, and dramatic tension. But I still found the limitations of a big, broad uh, stage musical in that the story seems completely bifurcated. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, it's literally split up into two yeah. acts. <laughs> but that, like, the initial goal is, like, okay, what is uh, Maria von Trapp's purpose? Like, initially, it's to be a woman of God and secluded in this convent, mm-hmm. or, excuse me, this abbey, and instead she finds it, it out in the world and, and raising these children. And instead, the second half becomes, like, oh, your goal is now to be a wife and help yeah. escape the Nazis, <laughs> which, as you said, isn't set up properly. No. We always talk about, like, in terms of like setup and payoff, like it would have made much more sense if like the specter of the Nazi regime and the evil that they're doing 
Not just not just the fact that they're Nazis, which we know are like immediately evil and bad. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that's the like, beauty of having Nazis as the film's villain. You don't need to set them up. You don't need to yeah. give them motivation. You don't need to like raise the stakes. It's like they're Nazis. They're the worst. You already know yeah. that they're bad. <laughs> yeah, but they don't really come into about two hours into this like three hour movie <laughs> is the issue. So that's that's kind of like my critique, even though. Like, I mean, I do, you get little hints of them. You get um, yeah. one of the kids has a romance with a kid who's very clearly in the Hitler youth. And I do kind of like the ambiguity with that character at least a little bit for a while. Um, you know, he has his own little moment where he has to kind of decide, you know, whose side is he on. And Christopher Plummer kind of, you know, goats him and it's like, come on, shoot me. It's within you, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's not, you little bitch. <laughs> Raindrops on roses. And whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes, snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes, silver white winters that melt into springs. These are a few of my favorite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so Well, that's one scene where I wish, like, like maybe dramatically it could have pulled out, uh, played out a little bit better, because th- these characters they only know each other like they only like uh, are acquaintances at this point. Like mm-hmm. he delivers the telegrams, and, so, and so he's he's so romantically uh, inclined towards Liesel, the oldest mm-hmm. of the Von Trapp children, mm-hmm. that he has like extra uh, uh, telegrams. How old is she or- again? <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I, I do remember, because I do like the song. She's 16, going on 17. Yes. Whereas he is 17, going on 18. And so, I do like that and, number in the gazebo. And yeah, yeah. If, I, if I am lucky enough to visit Austria one day, maybe, <laughs> maybe that gazebo is, is, a, is a destination for uh, my there wife and I. But. Well, I do, I do want to ask you, because I wasn't sure. It's like, is that, that song is meant to be a joke, right? Like, it's meant to be like... <laughs> Like you are well, sixteen. Yeah, like the whole idea is that it's a seventeen to eighteen year old singing it to like a sixteen to seventeen year old. It's like, oh, you don't have the wisdom of life yet. Let me tell you. <laughs> like, so that's I think it's the irony of the song. Correct. Like, it's not meant to be probably taken at face yeah. value. Okay. It would have helped if it wasn't reprised in the second act. Mm-hmm. And it was Julie Andrews singing it to the actress who's playing Liesel, who they look about the same age. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be. I don't want to judge another actress appearance but they do look like pretty much the same age which is mm. i'm gonna say like doesn't lend a lot of credence to the production but anyway like the, but maybe let's get to those production numbers huh john i mean that's let's do it we've yeah. got we've got do re mi fa so latigo do um yeah. we've got i guess that's my other problem with this movie um it's a stage production and yes. so what I always say about like, oh, jukebox musicals, they kind of lack something because the song was not written specifically for the story. And then here we are, we're coming into a musical where it's like all these songs were written specifically for the story, but they're still all 
painfully generic. <laughs> They're all about, yeah, music in theory. They're not really about, like, oh, how a character is particularly feeling. It's not necessarily about what's happening in the story. It's just all about, hey, music is fun, isn't it? <laughs> I'll, I'll push back on you there. Because okay. my favorite number is I do feel, I feel confidence. Mm-hmm. In which we have that long take. It's actually shot on location, unlike yep. uh, Amer- an American in Paris. Mm-hmm. And so we have that long tracking shot of uh, Julie Andrews like walking down that long dirt road with an empty guitar case. Again, I say empty because <laughs> the way she's swinging I mean, it. just the weight of it. You can tell yeah. that it's not <laughs> Exactly. We have fun here. Yes. But <laughs> I, I do like it in terms of the basics of... Because the, the idea of fun and joyousness has been so like kind of beaten out of these kids. Not beaten, literally, as, mm. at least as far as we know. Uh, I mean, it old. is 1940s Austria, so you know, <laughs> all bets are off. Well, uh, the, apparently the, the real uh, gay or Jean, uh, Von Trapp wasn't uh, disciplinarian as he's portrayed in this movie. Oh, but okay. I, I do like that it's introducing the basics of music to, the, music to these kids. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes the basis of, of more songs. So, like, I can understand it from a story perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you seem to maybe maybe you're a bit uh, more cynical and cold hearted, and you've obviously heard uh, the Do Re Mi song like eight thousand times before yeah. seeing this. Actually, and seeing this so movie. Long, so farewell, Avidas, and goodbye. goodbye. Yeah. yeah. Like again, like what what story purpose does that song have besides? Oh, it's ironic when they reprise it at the end and they're literally escaping <laughs> Nazi-occupied <laughs> Austria. And that well, that works for me. That's fine. Yeah, uh, right. yeah. I, well, again, in terms of like getting things to go quicker, because let's let's get to the the two two instances in which that number comes up. Mm-hmm. First is when they're saying goodbye to this like big grand ball that Captain Von Trapp has put Yeah, they're on. going to bed. They obviously can't stay up for the whole party. So. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so they go to bed. And then later it comes up at this festival in which uh, Nazis have now occupied, and they're co-signing, at least, like, making mandatory Captain Von Trapp comes with their armies, or they're going to execute him. Mm-hmm. And so they try to they try to escape earlier, but the obviously the Nazis like capture him, and they find a way out via this music festival put on by, not his literal brother, but the Uncle Max. Yeah, and so there, as you said, they they played this number, and there's another number, Edelweiss. I thought that worked also because of the location. Like it's an absolutely gorgeous theater, and I literally like said out loud, like "Wow!" Like yeah. <laughs> the fact that they could like kind of get these locations. No, again, in, like no no yeah. discredit to Robert Weiss. He knows how to direct a film. I just yes. think that editing wise and story wise, there wasn't as much as like say, uh, the other movie we've visited directed by him, which is West Side Story, which has a lot of energy. It moves at a good clip, and that movie is nothing but energy, and here it's just very laxatis. Good so long, farewell. Oh, well, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so long, farewell, I'll be just saying goodnight. I hate to go and leave this pretty sight. Adieu, adieu, to you and you and you. So long, farewell, oh, what are I'd like to stay and taste my first champagne. Yes? No. <laughs> So long, farewell, I'll be just saying goodbye. I leave.
and heave a sigh and say goodbye. Goodbye. You could point out a problem with the sequences, um, like following that number. It's uh, Uncle Max goes up on stage and says, "Okay, now we're going to announce the winners." <laughs> yeah. and then we and get all the winners. Place, even, yes, exactly. Even <laughs> for the show, the performances we haven't even seen. We haven't even seen. And there's this woman who accepts her bouquet and then uh, bows for about what feels like 25 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Which, again, you could justify with, like, well, she has to stall for time because the, mm-hmm. the Von Trapp family has to get away. And then we have another troop come up uh, who's won second prize, and, again, they take forever. And then, finally, pay off comedy rules of threes. The spotlight goes over to offstage, and the Von Trapp family isn't there, even though they've been announced. And then somebody, and then I believe it's Ralph who runs out, and goes, they're gone, they're gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I feel like is a slight missed opportunity. I think there are missed opportunities in the second act. A, mm-hmm. in that it just reprises every number from the first act, for one thing. Mm-hmm. And also in this scene with Ralph, because the Von Trapp family is hiding in the convent. Mm-hmm. And we see uh, Ralph like kind of use his wits, like... He, like, oh, we shine our uh, flashlights, or torches if you're English, because this is a very English production. <laughs> Uh, in this area, and oh, it looks like there, uh, there's not even a mouse stirring. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm gonna hang back and and just see what's going on. The Von Trapp family stupidly walks out of their their cover, <laughs> and Rolf has them pinned. But um, th- the way that uh, Captain Von Trapp uh, re- uses reverse psychology to say exactly. like, uh, yeah, I thought that could have been better in which he, he instead plays to Ralph's sympathy or maybe his good heartedness and say like, you know, Oh, you've been delivering to telegrams to our, uh, home for years, or like you do love my eldest daughter, Liesel or something. And instead he uses this kind of like reverse psychology. It feels like a, maybe a little outdated or a, a, like kind of a, a little simplistic, you know, masculine, like, mm, you know, you're not a man. Yeah, you're not yeah. a man, you yeah. old bitch. <laughs> Come on, shoot me if you're such a tough guy. Oh, you're yeah. not? Knew it. <laughs> Douche. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to prove you're not a man enough in this in this family-friendly musical. A little, yeah, a little aggressive. <laughs> a little aggressive. You're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that felt like a little missed opportunity. And that's kind of the, the, the final note and... Because while I do did enjoy the movie, there was one moment at the very end which had me screaming in disgust and anguish. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that uh, they kind of set up everything in which uh, the Von Trapp family does escape. The convent, the sympathetic convent, they did sabotage their Nazi pursuers. Yep. And that's which they bit. confess that is a sin, technically. Yes. So. Yep. And so that's a great setup and payoff. Mm-hmm. But what's the final shot? It's another... Like brilliant helicopter shot over the uh, Austrian and Swiss Alps mm-hmm. of the of the Von Trapp family, like presumably making their way to Switzerland. But then the camera pans up, face of lock, and says, "The end." <laughs> There's no resolution, as far as I know. The Von Trapp families were all were all captured by Nazis and sent to a concentration camp. Like terrible. Like at least give me a title card that said, "Like, hey, the Von Trapp family are okay." <laughs> I mean, I did forget that they are actually based on real people. So. Yes. <laughs> That's the thing. Thank like, you for again, me like, of put that. up a title. This is a family, uh, a very affirmative, family-friendly story. Like, mm. wouldn't you want it to end on a fa- uh, friendly? I assume that they did some kind of test screenings, and everyone had already walked out by the time it faded to black. <laughs> so, I, I, that's that's my best guess of why they didn't okay. do that. <laughs> Fair enough. 
I mean, title card sequences weren't invented till the 70s, right? I think it was Animal House that pioneered them, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fair enough. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. Captain Von Trapp went, went on to be uh, a U.S. senator. <laughs> Project Manhattan, <laughs> the Manhattan <Yes>. Project. <laughs> yeah, Lisa was part of the Bush White House. But anyway, there you go. Yeah. Uh, classic, classic. Yeah, but that's the only part of the story that had me screaming because again, mm-hmm. like, what, what the hell happened? Like, yeah. in real life, I, they just took it far less dramatically. They just took a train to Italy. The borders weren't closed yet. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, they up the stakes by saying that the borders are closed already and they have to sneak across the border. But anyway. Um, Again, like the story worked for me. Like the musical numbers worked for me. Like I, I was kind of overjoyed by the experience until the very end, when which they don't give you like a. I feel they didn't give me enough enough exposition or proper resolution to the Von Trapp family. Obviously, there's a happy ending. They escaped Nazi-occupied Austria and went on to have a a prosperous singing career after that. But yeah. Other than um, that, I mean, all the, I'm glad all you the songs liked are great. it. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, John. I mean, when you sit your grandchildren down on your knee, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Talk to them for three hours or put on this movie? Come on. <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> I'm going to put on... Uh, I'm just going to think of a funnier uh, three-hour movie, but nothing's coming to mind. I'm going to put on something by Terrence Malick. I don't know. <laughs> I, it's funny, a three-hour movie. John, how about the the movie that just lost the Oscars, The Irishman? No, All right, they're going to know. <laughs> Didn't All even right. win a single thing. Ugh. I know. What you're going to do is give them uh, one of their Christmas presents, and what's underneath there? $100, and they're going to love it. <laughs> and they're going to love me. <laughs> yes, and they're going to say thank you uh, at least once. She already that? said thank you. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's Was Joe deep. Pesci even at the awards? I oh, saw hell no. Hell no. Are you kidding? Okay. He knew he wasn't going to win. <laughs> no, all right. <laughs> yeah. Oh what, oh what what's he trying to make connections at the after party? I guess <laughs> at, at Sissy at Sissy Graydon Parter's uh, bad Oscar party afterwards. Not hot. <laughs> <laughs> I just keep I I'd have a hard time imagining like Joe Pesci is turned into this much of a recluse. You know, he can't even show up to just like an award ceremony. Are you like, kidding, John? That's like the basic thing you can do. Like, John, he hasn't been in a movie since two thousand eleven. All right. And that was a huge favor to Taylor Hackford and Helen Mirren <laughs> in another movie called Love Ranch. That was it. <laughs> okay. If you if you want to go back to his like last proper movie, it was like 2000. Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was it. Okay. With an 18-year-old Macaulay Culkin. It was a disaster. A disaster, oh, folks. A disaster. It's a disaster. You're hearing it more and more. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible movie. <laughs> yeah. Can't believe I even accepted doing that cameo. <laughs> 
They wanted me. They wanted me desperately. They came to me with tears they, in their they eyes. They begged me. They begged <laughs> they, me to they be came in their to me with stupid tears little in movie. They, they, came, they came to me with tears in their eyes. They said, Donald, Donald, we need you in their movie. It's a disaster <laughs> without you. <laughs> Ugh. But enough about politics, folks. No. Enough no. about politics. Let's yeah. let's call it. Let's let's wrap this episode up, Greg. Let's pull it into the station. Uh, yeah. which we're pulling in to our favorite segment, and that's spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. This is the segment in which we give a full-throated endorsement. Uh, it will not be of a Democratic uh, presidential candidate. Uh, mm. Note our wording there: Democratic mm. presidential yes. candidate. Uh, any member of the Democratic Party. <laughs> The important thing is the shape of our democracy is, is strong. <laughs> the shape of our democracy is our values, and yes. our values are shaped by our democracy. So. And always twirling, twirling <laughs> towards freedom. But enough about the New Hampshire primary, folks. Uh, yes. Which Bernie will win, and they'll try to steal from him. But mm-hmm. anyway. Of course. John, uh, let's talk about another movie that had their accolades stolen from them. <gasps> <laughs> Can you believe a white man didn't win Best Director? <laughs> Or best Ex- picture. This excuse is a travesty. Me. Excuse me, John. He's a person of color. He's British. All right. Oh. And <laughs> his last name is Mendez. There and you his go. His passion project. The, his creed de corps was 1917, apparently. Mm, yes. Uh, I had the opportunity to watch it this weekend. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, it's A OK. Mm. However, I have many, many, many reservations. <laughs> like, I there mean, are many. was it ever gonna? You were, you were the biggest like Dunkirk fan on the planet, I think, currently. <sighs> well, and so yeah, was this... anything ever gonna live up to Dunkirk? Like, well, this, obviously, this feels not. like no. Diet Dunkirk. Obviously not. No, and I'm not a, I'm not that cold-hearted to say like, oh, it's not Dunkirk, so it's awful, it's terrible. <laughs> Sissy Sam Mendes can't. I know Sissy Sam Mendes can't can't rip off Dunkirk properly. Sad. <laughs> um, I'm not gonna say that. What I am going to say is that it it like like probably a lot of World War One uh, veterans shot itself in the foot so that it couldn't actually <laughs> enter combat. Okay. And I'm going to talk about the one shot aspect. Mm-hmm. So there was another Best Picture uh, Oscar nominee, eventual winner in Birdman. Birdman, yes. if you will. Birdman, a, a, a film you adore. Which, yes, which I adore, and I think there's a very good purpose to it, um, even though yes. it is very showy. But it it serves two purposes. One, it adds a dreamlike quality to the movie because we are dealing with a main character who's kind of an unreliable narrator. And then two, it's also meant to be evoking evoking the theater. Yes. So obviously there is a reason why the one shot notion works for it. Yes. So they've been trying to do one shots all the way back to Hitchcock's Rope back in mm-hmm. 1948. Yes. Like the question is no longer like how or wow, instead mm-hmm. it's why. Mm-hmm. And that's the one question that was always like kind of like jumping out at me is the why. And you could say one thing is because like oh the the story that they're trying to tell is a time limit. Like we have to get this message to the front line so that another crop of uh 800 to 2000 uh young British people don't just like, completely lose their lives uh to the end of a pointless war. Exactly. Yeah. They'll all die of consumption otherwise. So yeah. <laughs> So at least the why I could kind of understand the but I was stuck on the how and there's one like big detriment to this versus say uh, Birdman, and maybe it's because Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu is a better director or something like that. But the problem is that 1917 is always moving, mm-hmm. so you're completely limiting yourself in terms of like all the filmmaking tools you have. 
So at least like Birdman had close-ups and wide shots and like <laughs> time lapse and the things that like kind of make a movie uh, kind of move forward. In 1917, all the action is moving forward, so everything is done at a medium shot. Yeah, because and we're it's constantly co- like following him down like a hallway or something like that. Yes, that uh, like, like always yeah. following them down a trench. So like, mm. in terms of like getting emotionally invested in these two characters who are named Schofield and Blake, like you're, you're not actually invested in their story, even in these like uh, even even in these short passages. Well, like, well, I have to get to me brother, um, <laughs> brother. Like you know, we grew up. He would always tell me stories, and we would joke and jape or whatever. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there are there are those like war film tropes, but they're done in the completely disservice of this long take because they're all done at a distance, and instead you're just seeing a green prairie in the north of France instead of like actually like getting close to and really seeing the emotional involvement of the characters. Mm, interesting. So that's a that's a huge problem. Uh, the rest of, and it's the same in terms of like contrivance because what we have here is a story of like okay, I I appreciate Dunkirk because it feels even though it's a war movie, it feels very real. Like people will critique like oh, that's like we don't know any of the characters backstory or anything or you know, like we don't we don't get in, uh, emotionally invested into them. War is a story of survival, and like you don't need to get involved in a in a character's backstory or anything. And instead, like 1917 is French Francois Truffaut's like a critique of like, oh, this will just glamorize war, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the idea. Like you do see like George McCabe's character like bravely like running across the front line to get the message to the general to stop the attack going through the troops or whatever. Like it is all like designed to be glorious and like kind of like build up this this uh, I don't know this honorifics around war. Mm-hmm. is the issue so like those those are my two critiques but like in terms of the rest of it it's all like incredibly well done like god bless the actors in ter- in terms of how limited they are in terms of how the the stories completely takes place in a medium shot to a wide shot that's it mm-hmm. like they still like kind of come across uh they st- still personify their characters very well. Again, all credit to Roger Deakins, who deserved his second Oscar for, like, a, a wonderful job done. The production design, um, there was, like, one cut in the middle of the story to jump time forward um, in this kind of burned-out French village. Like, that's all incredibly well done. I'd like, you know, in credit, credit, all credit due to the actual production itself, but... Like it's it's all in service of nothing. It's all in service of air. It's all in service <laughs> yeah. of like, I I don't want to like reiterate another critique, but I think uh, the AV Club's critic like had it right. Like it's all a monument to itself. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, do we need another movie like saying war is bad? Like, come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one thing. I, I I read like criticisms of it, and it's like war is hell. And I got I came away with the impression like war is heck. Like, yeah. I'm like oh no, there's a dead horse here, or like oh no, there's dummies like floating in the river that i floated down like it doesn't it doesn't actually feel like like proper war in a way no and it's like we it, it came across as phony yeah and we've been making fun of it comparing it to like dunkirk but really i think also like it serves a lot uh, it, it gives a lot of uh um sorry let me rephrase that it obviously owes a lot to like saving Private Ryan as well. Like yes. you know, oh, you're aware, men on mission, and we have to like get there before you know it's too late. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you have to get to the brother before it's too late. Like yeah, it's yeah, it's very obviously like kind of aping from other like All Quiet on the Western Front and to mm-hmm. some extent Dunkirk and Saving Private Ryan. 
but yet there's something about it that feels so ersatz, and I think it is that one take aspect of it that makes it feel so artificial. And mm. again, like as the AV Club critic said, like a monument to itself rather than anything else. So yeah, what yeah. But I mean, that said, like okay, like not the worst way to pass 130 minutes of your time. But <laughs> <laughs> who would have thought from the director of American Beauty? <laughs> your favorite movie, I think. My favorite movie. Yes. Yeah. The best movie we've ever done for the podcast. I'm. I mean, I'm so glad like, we did it. Sam Mendes just occupies a weird space in my head because I'm like, is he good? He's a good technician. <laughs> I really like Skyfall, but I heard Spectre was really bad, and he's done American Beauty, one of the worst films ever committed to celluloid. <laughs> um, he, I, I, I know we're not. You know, genuine here, but I mm. do really love Jarhead, mm. which is another war film that he did. Oh, he did like, Jarhead? Oh, yes. Okay. I didn't know that. Yes, with the benefits of, of edits and everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Jake Gyllenhaal. When you get Jake yeah, Gyllenhaal. Well, yeah, and Jamie Foxx and all that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that That's a wonderfully done war film, and I was like, and maybe I'm just comparing it to Jarhead, which I feel is leaps and bounds ahead of, like, 1917. But, the, yeah, I... I think you're right. He's a, he's a great technician, and he knows how to use the people around him because uh, he's obviously enlisted the duties of a great cinematographer in Roger Deakins, and also the late Conrad Hall, who won an Oscar for American Beauty among other projects. And so, mm-hmm. and I mean, obviously, getting great performances out of Jake Gyllenhaal, Jamie Fox, uh, let's say Annette Benning and and Wes Bentley, and all that. So, mm-hmm. yes, I think I think he knows how to enlist talents, but. Yeah, don't 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 rely on him to be like the <laughs> the sole source of a film's uh, 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 quality. Hence, why maybe he okay. didn't win the Oscar this year for 1917. Um, I mean, everyone he already saw, has an Oscar to his name, so everyone yeah, don't saw feel bad right for him. through him. That's what happened. Yeah, <laughs> he was already married to the exquisite Kate Winslet, so we're not gonna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's not he's not losing in the game of life. <laughs> yeah. <that much. laughs> no. Well, Greg, I have another, uh, uh, piggybacking off your uh, recommendation for Spotlight, I have to recommend another war film, as it were. Uh. Um, it's, it's a, well, it's, it's funny, I was reading the trivia about it, and the director said, like, it's not an anti-war film specifically, it's more just like a kind of slice of life and a slice of time. I got around to watching Grave of the Fireflies. Oh, that, yes. <laughs> you say it's not an anti-war film. Everything I've heard is, like... This is a, even though it's an animated film, this is a harrowing experience. Greg, and Greg, Greg. I I take umbrage when people say this is a bleak movie. This is really? the bleakest movie. <laughs> <laughs> the opening scene is literally the main character dying alone, homeless and hungry on the subway as janitors clean the trash around his body. That's the oh. opening scene. <laughs> okay. I didn't know that. I know it's between it's an older brother and a younger sister, right? Yes. Uh, uh, it's okay. About, so yes, it's about. So no, uh, no spoiler alert about the fate of the older brother. Um, <laughs> Greg again, he dies in the opening scene. Okay, um, got it. But there's a lot of time hopping. It's a it's a movie taking place uh, towards the tail end of uh, World War II. Uh, it centers around uh, two siblings, uh, Saita and uh, Setsuko. Uh, okay. Setsuko is the younger do- uh, the younger sister. Um, they are forced to kind of flee their village after it gets firebombed. And their mother is, unfortunately, uh, uh, her life is lost in that fire. Uh, not before we get to see 90% of her body burned. Oh, boy. Oh, great. <laughs> and she dies alone in a hospital. Yay. <laughs> uh, John, is this a happy film? <laughs> you know, 
Like compare this to like Toy Story Four. It's a, is it a joyous animated experience or? Well, honestly, my mind kept going back to believe it or not, Life is Beautiful, where okay. it's a movie where it's trying to contrast kind of the horrors of war, but also that that you know childhood innocence where you can't quite process what's happening around you. Now, granted. Uh, Life is Beautiful sucks balls. This movie, obviously, is much more successful um, because there is that element where the older brother is trying to kind of shelter his sister from the horrors of war and what is happening around her. But really, it's more about like the day-to-day survival. Uh, with the mother out of the picture, their father is uh, is somewhere off in the Navy. He's fighting in the... in you know, Lord knows somewhere off in Midway in the Pacific Theater. And so they're basically homeless and they basically have to scrounge for food wherever they can. The other kind of element of the the movie is the fact that it's it's in a time of scarcity for Japan. Everyone's, everything is dedicated to the war effort right now. So Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of access to food. Everyone and whatever access there is to food, everyone's kind of holding on to themselves. So there's not a lot of like, you know, people can help out whenever they can, but it's like, hey, I got to feed my own family too. (laughs) So it's, it's this very, this very harrowing experience watching them kind of like fight and scrape for survival uh, in these kind of very dire circumstances, even though obviously the animation is very lush and the, the setting is very kind of like, pastoral and beautiful but you know every day it's like there's that ticking element where it's like another day goes by without food and it's it's obviously much harder on his sister because his sister is much younger she's Mm. basically like one step beyond a toddler you know she like wakes up in the night and cries in bed you know like because her stomach is so empty you know it's it's a very very bleak movie But weirdly, also very apolitical as well. Like it's it's kind of representing like the horrors of war, but it doesn't really like take a side specifically. It doesn't give you like a lot of historical context. It's just it's very much a war is hell kind of drama. And, yeah, but it also like it it like I said, it's like that contrast about you know war is hell, but also like childhood innocence. So the title comes from this sequence where you know in a nice moment of levity, uh, they're you know sleeping out in the middle of the woods because they're homeless. Um, and his brother, uh, the older brother is like, Hey, let's go catch fireflies. And so they catch these fireflies and they kind of, and they kind of let them loose in their shelter. And it creates all this like lovely little laser light show for her. And, you know, it's just it, these, it's this kind of like these, these little grasps, these wonderful little moments that happen. And then, you know, reality comes crashing down on them. But, um, it's it's a very powerful and very affecting film, and surprisingly not by it's by Studio Ghibli, but I thought uh, Hayao Miyazaki directed it, but apparently he did not. It was by uh, another man named uh, Ayazo uh, Takana Te- Tekehana. Yeah, you you okay. would pronounce it yeah. better than me. You've been to Japan. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say I knew it wasn't a Hayao Miyazaki's joint, but I didn't mm-hmm. know I didn't know who exactly directed it, and yeah, I was thinking of saving it for this this podcast but <laughs> uh well yeah that was the other thing i was d- debating whether i should watch it or we should save it for the podcast but it was also on hulu and i just didn't know when it was going to expire so i was like there was a sense of urgency i was like i gotta watch it now or else i might miss yeah. it forever well <laughs> the studio Ghibli ju- films are very very weird gray zone when it comes to distribution so <laughs> exactly not just a sense of urgency in terms of its availability but also in its quality and i'm glad that yeah we can like full-throatedly like recommend what is i know probably one of the greatest animated films ever made um probably one of the greatest 
anti-war films ever made. So, um, <laughs> so I'm, I, I commend your bravery for actually like sitting down and watching it intentionally. So, mm. and only you, a John. blessed ninety minutes. Oh, yes, that sweet spot, <laughs> just beautiful. <laughs> I, I and I did have a way to connect it to the Oscars, but now it's it's flew out of my head, and maybe I'll I'll tweet it out later. But <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, I mean, we've obviously given a lot of hot takes this episode. I yes. think there's only one appropriate place to to bring everyone who has any sense of derision or any sort of hate that they want to lobby at us. Greg, where do they want to throw it? Where are they gonna Where are they gonna reach out to us? I, I think first of all, Facebook. I think mm. that's a big one. Yeah. Um, I know they ran ads during the Oscars itself. So, like, you know, if you do want to not be part of that stupid rock-based ad, <laughs> which they're like, hey, we have rocket clubs and rock cli- climbing clubs and, and rocking chair porch clubs or whatever, <laughs> while we steal your data and sell you um, um, uh, fake news pushed by Russia and conservatives. <laughs> Go to aspiring or uh, facebook.com slash aspiring snobs. Mm-hmm. We're there, and we'll give you the true news, the real news. Yes, about about our all our beloved characters in the impeachment TV show. Um, but we'll also do that. I mean, that season finale was so disappointing, though, for exactly. that impeachment television show. I know. I was so sad to see Colonel, what is his name, Vineland. <laughs> It's just all the characters did the most expected things, you know? I know, yeah, that's true. Except for Mid Romney. I like the redemption arc he had. Yes. <laughs> but <laughs> But we're also on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. If you want some more of our political commentary there. Yeah. As well as Instagram. Well, you will not get any political commentary. Instead, no. you'll get nothing but pure influencer, influence drama. Um You'll get all our skincare regimens. You'll yes. get all these great tote bags that we've been where we've been buying them from. It's all, it's all influence, baby. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. You will see uh, photos of us taken by our spouses out on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Just as the waves crashing, they have to catch those right moments. So you know that's that's really what Instagram's about the moments. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what you'll capture there at Instagram. Um, but I mean, if you want to get in touch with us more personally. We do have an email address, aspiringsnobs at gmail.com, where you can write to us about your Oscar thoughts, your predictions maybe, like how they were correct or wrong, and we would love to hear about it. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Parasite, uh, Mm -hmm. to what it's now, like uh, maybe one of the greatest films of all time, now that it's won the Palme d'Or and uh, Best Picture uh, Oscar, but go ahead, uh, write us about that, and go ahead, write us a review. We're at uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Player FM. We're all on there. And, you know, if you did like the show, go ahead, rate us five stars. If you didn't like the show, keep it to yourself. Don't actually, like, give us bad stars or anything like that. We don't want that. No, no, This no, is the Oscars. This is all about being affirmative and good. Yeah, come on. I mean, who deserves golden trophies more than us, honestly? Yeah. <laughs> for doing exactly. this podcast for so long. Exactly. We're white men. We deserve it at this point. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, well, Greg, there's only one thing yeah. left to do. We've already pulled into the the station of of spotlight, but now we gotta we gotta ring the bell for our next stop, which is what we're watching next week. Yes, all aboard, people. Uh, <laughs> we tried to stick to a theme of uh, best picture winners that were also musicals. However, if you look at Oscars history throughout the 1970s, they didn't actually have any 
Best Picture winners that were musicals. So instead, we're going to get to a near miss. Mm -hmm. This was the heavy favorite back in 1972. But that that title was taken by a movie you and I have already seen, The Godfather. Mm. Uh, so we'll decide which one's better. Uh, snub, the Godfather, snub, <laughs> robbed. <laughs> exactly, The Godfather in this movie, and it is of course Bob Fosse's Cabaret. I mean, we all knew that Guineas ruled the the the, uh, the Academy, but <laughs> Sean, <laughs> you're worse than Ray Romano. You're going to be bleeped <laughs> to 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 oblivion for that one. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Listen, John, John, I don't care if you used anti-Italian slurs, all right? I'm here to defend you. Right? <laughs> but, I mean, come on. Did you do it? Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yes, we're going to paint some houses next week. We'll, we'll, yes. we'll say that much. <laughs> yeah. Now, we're going to be talking about Bob Fosse, the, the, the Frenchies, the Bob Fosse in Cabaret. It actually takes place up. in Germany, Greg. I'm pretty sure it takes really? place in oh, Germany. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Wait, it takes place in Germany? or Yeah. All I know is it's, it's. I'm really looking forward to it because it's apparently like an anti-musical. Like it, it it's tries very, to. It's it's very different. I mean, you you made the point that yeah, the 70s was not a big time for musicals. It's because obviously, famously, Hello Dolly and Doctor Doolittle were huge boondoggles and huge bombs. Yeah. So yes, Cabaret kind of swept the scene, being the exact opposite of what those movies are. It's very darkly lit. It's very. Uh, it's very much against like the kind of bright, you know, MGM roadshow musicals. So yeah, <laughs> it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Okay, well, we have that to look forward to next week. So mm-hmm. until then, thank you everybody for listening, and until next time. Hey, big spender, <laughs> spend a little time with us, <laughs> Busta. <laughs>